Two friends taking pictures of the rising full moon on a summer night. Two teenage kids doing what teenage kids do. When a stranger with a gun and a death wish changed everything. It was violent, it was senseless, and I will never understand it, I will never accept it. I'm Amy Donaldson, and unfortunately, we're all too familiar with stories about how violence shatters lives. But what we rarely see is how they are rebuilt. In a new podcast, The Letter, we relive tragedy, but only so we can hear the rest of the story. The struggle to reclaim lives, the realities of grief, and the possibilities of forgiveness. I believe in miracles. Sometimes I thought, there are no miracles. Yeah, there are, and this is a big one. Follow The Letter at theletterpodcast.com or wherever you get your podcasts. And thank you for joining us on this week's edition of Utah Weekly Forum. I'm your host, Rebecca Cressman, and today we're going to be talking in depth about something that can be quite challenging for our community, for our families, and that is eating disorders. How prevalent are they? How do we treat them? What do we do as a family dynamic uh, as we care for someone with eating disorders? Where can we go for help? Joining us in studio from Avalon Hills is Tara Lindsagraf Benson. She's a clinical director of patient services with Avalon. Thank you for being here, Tara. Thanks for having me, Rebecca. Also, she flew in on a jet plane, right, Tara? We're talking about Jennifer Tolman. She's not only a psychologist like Tara, but the director of specialty services. Thank you so much. Hello. Hi, sorry to have interrupted you there for a minute. Avalon Hills is in Logan. Yes, we are a residential eating disorder treatment facility, and we work with young women and adult women as well who are struggling with eating disorders. When we even just started out that way and we say we work with young women and adult women, why do we know why it's so gender specific, this disease? Yeah, the reality is that the incidence is increasing within the male population, but it is about still an estimate that about 20 million American women will suffer from an eating disorder in their lifetime and 10 million men at this point. So the gender gap is narrowing over time as there's increasing pressure on men as well. So it is related to that, that idea of holding yourself up to an ideal. Is that correct? Yes, that's correct. We think of genetics as loading the gun and society as pulling the trigger. So there are some genetic predispositions, being female is one of them, uh, being a twin, having a parent or a close relative with an eating disorder. Those are some of the genetic things, eating or feeding issues as a child that kind of set you up. And then there are things in the environment, peer pressure, bullying, teasing about weight, um, Overexercise on parts of parents that sort of send one over the edge. This is so um, new for me, and I appreciate just the preface you gave it, that there is a genetic component, but that the societal pressures or the lifestyle pressures we may have inflicted upon us or we may choose may aggravate that and, and then bring it to life. And, and I Correct. didn't realize that. Does that help us when we are seeking out treatment to know that, uh, that some of this maybe coming from a biological um, pre, you know, pre- predisposal to have an eating disorder. Definitely, because I think it helps us shape treatment options for that individual and understanding what their factors are that led to the onset of their eating disorder related to the genetic and environmental components are really key in terms of effective treatment because each of those aspects needs to be addressed. 
So in terms of the genetic load, we actually use applied neuroscience as one of our treatment modalities, and we're looking at uh, brain patterns through a quantitative EEG that actually tells us what areas of the brain are maybe overactivated or underactivated, which areas aren't communicating well. So we can really intervene both with the traditional methods of therapy, family work, group work, as well as the biobases working through neurofeedback avenues to help people heal from their eating disorder. And and that importance of healing is because let's talk about, uh, I don't want to say dire straits, but why is it so important for us, number one, to get a diagnosis, to understand if we're dealing with an eating disorder and getting the treatment that is important? How risky is it for someone to have an eating disorder? Well, eating disorders are a psychiatric disorder with medical and nutritional complications. And so we kind of have to approach it with a three-pronged approach because it's the highest, has the highest mortality rate of any psychiatric disorder. Mm. And so it robs parents of children, it robs sisters, it robs brothers of siblings. And so taking kind of a, like Tara said, a holistic approach. Talk therapy is no longer enough. We need to be doing things that get to the brain, to the brain-based parts. Of because that's what di- is directing the motivational behavior and the impulses, correct? Part of that. Part of it, okay. definitely. It's always a complex interplay between that bio-based proclivity as well as the environmental triggers that either spurred the onset of the eating disorder, which can be different sometimes than the factors that maintain it over time. So just think of a habit that you've tried to break. And anytime you have a a pretty ingrained habit, that really hardwires your brain that this is my default mode. This is really comfortable. This is what I want to do. Every time I open my door to my house, I put my keys here. And I walk here. Exactly. So it's, it's a complex interplay between and that's why it requires such a holistic complex treatment center individualized can can we also go back for just a minute because i'm going to say karen carpenter and some people are too young won't know Mm -hmm. that name but she really brought the the um the news of what eating disorders are and what they can do as she died at a very young Mm -hmm. age from that and was Mm -hmm. so popular as a musician one of the best voices they say of our of our generations So knowing that that started the conversation and opened it up, we hear people just throwing out sometimes eating disorder, eating disorder. Mm -hmm. What, how do we define what an eating disorder is and then identify uh, it's um, how to, how to identify it, what to look Mm -hmm. for symptoms of that? So there are a lot of different uh, things for coaches, teachers, parents, loved ones to be watching for. So obviously there's generally a typical sort of diet progression. So there's some attempt to change eating habits based on a desire for something, either thinness, uh, increased health and wellness. That's sort of commonly known as orthorexia. It's not a specific clinical term, but there are, are factors that sort of lead them down that path. And just going back to the gun metaphor, if that if they're loaded For the onset of an eating disorder, any of those sort of behavioral changes can be the thing that spurs it. All right. So watch first for a step. And we had that with our niece. Suddenly, anything with an animal product, and it was, and I could watch her kind of pull back with disgust towards it. And that's what my first trigger was, was, oh, this is not just a decision to be vegetarian. Mm -hmm. She's literally 
emotionally reacting when exposed to this. Okay, so, okay, that's one of the signs. Yes, a fear of weight gain is another really important sign. And would they be verbalizing that? or Oftentimes, yes. Like, you know, they may not even realize in that moment. I Very rarely, if ever, I've heard one of our patients say, I set out to have an eating disorder. It's just something that once it was triggered, it's like the switch is on and they become obsessed with food, eating, cooking, body image issues. Weight, size. Exactly. And like looking at other factors that parents can be watching for, social changes, withdrawal, depression, almost always comes on board with malnutrition at a certain point, increased anxiety, increased irritability, avoidance of situations that involve food. These are some of the more subtle signs that that people may not pick up on right away, but are things to watch, a collective pattern of behaviors. And it's usually a pretty distinct change. Yes. And the thing to think about is that initially, if you have anxiety, you don't want anxiety. If you have depression, you don't want depression. But Eating disorders are what we call egocentric. They're uh, consistent and congruent with the type of way that we conceptualize ourselves. And so, yeah, the identity of a thin person and that thin idealization is almost always a part of the eating disorder. And initially, they, you know, eating disorders often help um, manage underlying issues such Mm -hmm. as depression and anxiety. And so, They're very adaptive. Mm -hmm. You know, if restricting makes you feel less anxious, you continue to restrict. (laughs) You know, anything that until they're not adaptive, until they don't work anymore and you become so thin and so weak and so malnourished and your brain doesn't work anymore. Mm -hmm. And at that point, I talk to my patients about they're over the waterfall and you need professional help to reel them back. Right. Like the switch is flipped on and they can't flip it off again on their own. So if you're a coach, if you're a parent, if you're a sister, if you're a boyfriend and husband and you're you're starting to see those symptoms and recognize that and you see the weight loss beginning to fall, what do we need to know about treatment? Because Mm -hmm. Avalon Hills, you've mentioned already that you are not only pairing um, behavioral changes, cognitive behavioral therapy, but with neuroscience Mm -hmm. uh, science as well. So what do we need to know about treatment of of eating disorders? Well, like Dr. Tolman mentioned, if you're noticing symptoms, it's probably already been in action for a long time at that point because they so often fly under the radar for a long time. So I would say at the first sign of concern, Get a professional consult with a therapist, dietitian, and medical provider who are well versed in the treatment of eating disorders, and, and I they think can that's help. Key, yeah, the, who the, are well versed. Really need mm-hmm. to have an expertise in eating disorders, and that treatment team. Once you form a treatment team of eating disorder professionals, they can help families understand what level of care is most appropriate for this person because it depends on how far they fell off the waterfall. If you can bring them back out throughout patient care and sort of a, a confusing thing about eating disorders cares there are five different levels based on illness severity and acuity physical and psychological um, and they're based on 10 criteria for the from the American Psychiatric Association that really help guide providers and parents like does this person need outpatient or do they need a higher level of care? And and we offer residential care. So that means we, those those youth or adult women are living at Avalon Hills for a period of time in order to not only get the skills that they need, but to get the treatment because it is a mental illness. Exactly. Correct. Yes. And 
the wraparound 24-7 care really provides the structure and safety for them to symptom interrupt initially, do any nutritional rehabilitation they need to do, stabilize medically, and then really dive into the psychological work of what led to the onset of the eating disorder and how can we prevent that from manifesting again so they can live a full, long thriving life that they deserve. Now, when I talk to individuals who have um, had a daughter uh, in residential treatment care, one of the things that comes up is costs. Mm -hmm. So I'm very glad that, by the way, for those who just joined us, that was Tara Lindsagrav Benson. She's the clinical director of patient services at Avalon Hills, also from Oregon. Jennifer Tolman has come in. She's the director of specialty services. Tell me the role that insurance plays in deferring or absorbing um, some of the costs of treatment. So the cost of treatment is probably one of the trickiest parts of seeking good treatment and staying in treatment long enough. Because of the medical complications, often the insurance company will only pay until they're medically stable. And what happens with that is when they're malnourished, they don't have the cognitive resources or the ability to think, to engage in treatment, to look at their life beyond the eating disorder. And what happens is that they get in this revolving door of treatment, meaning that they get into a, for example, residential level of care where they belong. And as soon as they're medically stable, as soon as their vitals are stable or they've met their certain weight criteria, the insurance discharges. They stop authorizing for treatment. And then the patient goes home at a time when they're highly triggered because they're at a normal body weight again, but haven't had the chance to fully recover. And then they relapse because it's too difficult to maintain those treatment gains at a lower level of care. And so what happens is that it perpetuates the myth that girls don't recover or people don't recover from eating disorders. And and that is a myth. It it is is curable. It is curable. Yes. And people can go on to have a full life if they get the appropriate treatment and for the appropriate amount of time. And medical necessity is an important aspect in eating disorders care, but it's just the start. And when we're basing our care judgments uh, for a mental disorder Mm -hmm. disorder on medical criteria, it's one of 10 criteria for level of care as the gold standard of treatment in the field. So an eating disorder treatment professional will be looking at those things, but it, it, it feels a lot on our end like one thing is being overemphasized and dictating care. Is there a thought within the insurance companies that an eating disorder is self-inflicted? There is. And we have many reviewers who, you know, review on these cases to authorize treatment who will say, well, she just needs to eat. Mm-hmm. You know, she just needs to get over it and eat. And that to us, to the treating professionals, is the equivalent of saying, oh, you have schizophrenia, just stop hallucinating. Or you have diabetes, just Bring up your insulin. On your own. Right. On your own. Without being yeah. able to make those changes within. Exactly. So does Avalon Hills provide a, a patient a advocate, someone to help them navigate yes. the insurance? Because if not, we're unaware of what our rights are, how mm-hmm. to push back. And I have tried to fight against an insurance company before. It's brutal. It's tricky. Boy. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 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 We have a very talented staff that, that Jen actually leads. The utilization review team, their sole purpose from the time that that prior to the admission of the patient through their discharge fights with the insurance companies. And it can be a tussle sometimes because our vision of what 
recovery is and how that patient can move on and whether or not they can sustain treatment gains at a lower level of care might look very different from what the insurance um, company believes. And often um, now with the Affordable Care Act, we have what's called mental health parity laws, which says that... To me, that was groundbreaking, by the way. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And it says essentially that an insurance company has to treat mental illness in the same way and with the same care as they do uh, a medical illness. So that is the idea, but it doesn't always happen. And often when they're at a residential level of care, the insurance company will call every day or Mm -hmm. every other day or every third day to say, what is the progress? How are they doing? We think it's time to step them down. And we don't see that in a medical situation. For example, if a mother goes into labor, they don't stop when she's dilated to a nine and say, you know what, we might not cover it's been this anymore. Six hours. <laughs> exactly. You know, get you with it. You should have had that baby by now. Even she's if, she's yeah. thinking the same thing. But <laughs> exactly. But very so that is why it's important. So the Affordable Care Act did. It introduced the idea of mental, well, the idea to all uh, American citizens that we have the right to, mm-hmm. to parity, whether we're treating physical illness or mental illness. Correct. When we are uh, taking advantage or tapping into the uh, ombudsman role that a patient advocate plays at Avalon Hills with the insurance company, is that before my daughter is in residential mm-hmm. treatment? Okay. Yes. From the beginning, we, we negotiate with the insurance company and we set forth what we know to be the best way to treat, and that is to treat to outcome, to keep them in that level of care until they're able to sustain recovery. Is there a time frame now? That's a tricky question, isn't it? It mm-hmm. is a tricky question. A time frame for good treatment? Uh, for, for you just said. Length of stay. Length of stay mm-hmm. for so the we desired could talk outcome. averages, mm-hmm. but really individualized care is individualized. And it has to be tailored to that, what that person's going through. And we also do a graded transition back into the home environment because oftentimes residential centers We'll just treat to insurance company benefit. Often when patients are at their most fragile psychologically, very highly triggered, as Jen said, exposed to weight goals and things of that nature that really put them over the edge in terms of anxiety, discharged prematurely, and they're just left to their own devices. One day they're in residential and the next day they're discharged at home. And there's no real evidence to state that they can swim in those waters. So the graded transition that Avalon Hills provides is a series of increasingly longer times when they're in their home environment, meeting with their treatment team from home, reconnecting with family, and also being exposed to all of those difficult things that may have been a factor in their eating disorder. So we really need to see that they can take the skills that we're trying so desperately to teach them and integrate them into their real world to know that we're successful, that we're giving them a successful chance at outcome and long-term recovery, which is totally possible. One thing that Avalon does that is unique in um, resident in a residential setting is that we're not a sterile environment. For example, in the summer, we put the kids in their wetsuits and in their bikinis, and we go to Bear Lake, and they get to experience Real in life. vivo what it's going to be like to be in a bathing suit. And we send them to the gas station for an eat out challenge to get a snack mm-hmm. or a, or a dinner, you know, and that would be highly not triggering. familiar with an eating disorder and the power mm-hmm. it has, they do not understand 
that force. I had a call from a friend once who said, I'm sitting at, I'll bring tears to my eyes, I'm sitting out front of a convenience store and I'm trying to not go in and go buy Mm -hmm. um, a lot of food that she typically binges on. And I'm so embarrassed. I'm so ashamed of myself for enduring this. Can you talk me through it? And she wanted to be healed. Mm -hmm. And yet she was battling herself. And and so until you've understood the complexity or we've understood we just don't want to set. I'm, I, I love hearing that. We just don't want to set them into the environment until their coping skills are developed. Mm-hmm. And yeah. they demonstrate that they can actually apply them in their real world. And be successful. Yeah. So if I am concerned about a daughter or a sister or wife will go back and I'm seeing symptoms of mm-hmm. eating disorders, knowing that it's quite prevalent, isn't it? How... how uh, uh, prevalent is eating disorders. The our- recent estimates indicate about one in 20 females, young adult women in that adolescent age group are struggling with an eating disorder. So, And yet they put themselves at risk because so many young girls, uh, they, they see these fad diets. And, mm-hmm. uh, I, you know, I, I talked to one woman and she said in her lifetime, she had already been on 50 different diets yeah. and started when she was 13. Unfortunately, yeah. in our culture, it's all too common to hate your body and feed into this idea that it has to be changed or that your life will be better if I, if you look a certain way. So if we see the symptoms and we are starting to see irritability, pulling back, um, uh, uh, the weight loss, um, the lack of purging, evidence of laxative abuse. And may I also introduce sometimes there is a level of having to hide that behavior. Mm, totally. So you may be yeah. seeing some lying this patterns. This is very typical. Right? Yes. Mm-hmm. So, As Jen mentioned, it, it's ego syntonic. So they don't necessarily want to get rid of it. Like your friend. Because it rewards themselves exactly. the more they do it. There's okay. a function or multiple functions so for them in their lives. So we reach out to a specialist, yes. either a family practice physician who has a specialty or knows someone who has a specialty in treating eating disorders or mm-hmm. identifying them. Then how do we know whether our daughter or wife should be in residential treatment? And yes. then how do we connect with Avalon? Yeah, so going back to the levels of care and the the three people that need to be in a treatment team to really effectively address an eating disorder, a medical provider to manage the medical side, a dietary person, dietitian, registered dietitian, and a therapist. And those three people are key. So I would set up a treatment team initially with those three and then talk to them about level of care. If you're not seeing improvement in outpatient, that's your sign that they need a higher level of care. And when it comes to recognizing the higher level of care, the next step would then to reach out to a patient advocate to help us definitely not just negotiate, but possibly fight the insurance company. Right. So so what would happen next is you would talk to an admissions coordinator who would help make that transition smooth. And in the back, in the uh, background, then the utilization review team is working to get coverage is working to set um, rates in place so that the the family, the burden on the family financially is lessened and that they are holding the insurance company accountable for what they're contractually obligated to pay for. And isn't it true that uh, the insurance company is pretty good at appealing? I mean, like delaying. Mm -hmm. Denying. (laughs) Denying. So that's their, Mm -hmm. I mean, that's the gamble that the insurance company does is, you know, they don't think that patients are going to push back. And we really encourage, you know, a frank and lively discussion with the insurance companies to 
make sure that they're covering mm-hmm. what they need to be covering for their really patients. And we really partner with families to make sure that they're advocating for themselves and armed with the best knowledge to advocate with the insurance company for the benefits that they're due. They paid their mm-hmm. premiums. I have such compassion for these families because they're already so concerned about the life and death of their child mm-hmm. or their wife or their aunt or their sister. And then they're going to do battle with um, the, with an insurance mm-hmm. company when the Affordable Care Act, as we know it, has said you have a right mm-hmm. to care for, for mental parity, parity care for mental illness. You have a right to make sure your child, your wife can move on in a healthy way. Correct. And recover. Particularly from something that's, that is curable. This is not something, a disease that needs to take lives, yet it still is. It is still, like you said, the mental illness with the highest mortality rate. We've talked about eating disorders and the time has gone by so quickly. And I know that you mentioned one in 20 mm-hmm. women in their life at some point um, may either be diagnosed or fight an eating disorder. So it's quite, quite common. How do we reach Avalon Hills if we want to continue the discussion about residential care and advocacy um, navigating the insurance? Yes, I encourage people to check out our website. There's a a wealth of information about our program as well as info about eating disorders and, and the brain applied neuroscience components. So even if you're not pursuing residential, you can learn a little more about that. And it's avalonhills.org. So on the web and Facebook, and I think we're on Instagram now as well. So avalonhills.org. That was Tara Lindsegraff Benson, the clinical director of patient services. Also joining us, Jennifer Tolman, the director of specialty services, providing support, information, and uh, how shall I say, I don't want to say weapons, but uh, hope for healing hope and recovery. For healing to navigate that care to get access for those you love. Jennifer, thank you for thank coming you for having us. all this way to make it possible. For more information, go to avalonhills.org. And thank you for joining us on this week's edition of Utah Weekly Forum.